Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. The Safe and Sound Protocol is a simple yet powerful intervention that can help the nervous system feel safe when it is safe. It can help to change the brain's confirmation bias that has been conditioned to expect danger or aloneness toward being able to take in and maybe even expect safety and togetherness, connection. Today's guest on the Parenting After Trauma podcast is Melissa Corkum, and I can't wait to share with you how the safe and sound protocol could be one intervention that helps to build the foundation of the brain. I'm Robin Goebel, the founder and host of the Parenting After Trauma podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate that for parents of kids who have experienced trauma. I'm a psychotherapist with over 15 years of experience working with kids who have experienced trauma and their families. I'm also a self-diagnosed brain geek and relationship freak. I study the brain kind of obsessively and even taught the science of interpersonal neurobiology in a certificate program. I started this podcast on a whim with the intention to get you free, accessible support as fast as possible. So the podcast isn't fancy, and I do very little editing. It's pretty common to hear a cockadoodle do in the background. If you love the episode, add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast player wherever you're listening to this podcast, and share it with your friends and colleagues. You're definitely then going to want to head over to my website and get my free ebook all about the brilliance of attachment. 
Readers of the ebook are saying that not only is the book beautifully laid out and easy to read, but it's offering a perspective on attachment that they've never heard before, and it's shifting things for them. You can download the ebook for free at robingobel.com slash ebook. While you're on my website, you are definitely going to want to check out my calendar of upcoming trainings for both parents and professionals at robingobel.com slash trainings. Today's episode with Melissa Corkum from The Adoption Connection is sponsored by The Club, my virtual community of connection, co-regulation, and of course, a little education for parents of kids impacted by trauma. Right now, The Club is in the middle of a three-month exploration into attachment that is truly blowing me away. It is so overwhelming to be part of this amazing community. The way they are bravely showing up for each other and themselves has exceeded what I even thought was possible. If you need to feel seen, to be gotten, and and understood, we would love to have you. The club opens for new members approximately every three months, and we'll be opening our doors again in the fall of 2021. If you head over to robingobel.com slash the club, you'll be able to add yourself to the waiting list. I've known today's guest, Melissa Corkum, for years and years through our mutual connection and the ways that we bump into each other online. We we had the good fortune of meeting in person about five years ago at an Adopted Moms conference where I was a speaker, and we now both support and keep track of each other's work, mostly through the internet and listening to each other's podcasts and bumping into each other on Facebook. I knew I wanted to have a guest who could talk about the Safe and Sound Protocol, a powerful intervention that supports building the foundation of the brain. And I actually have many, many colleagues who use the Safe and Sound Protocol in their work in amazing ways. I'm actually even trained in the Safe and Sound Protocol, though I've never actually used it with clients. I wanted to invite Melissa onto the show because she brings a unique perspective of being an adopted person and an adoptive mom. And also she isn't a mental health practitioner. You all know I've become increasingly interested in trying to find ways that we can offer kids and families moments of healing. Breaking down the barriers to therapy and traditional mental health care, but getting creative and offering therapeutic experiences and moments in accessible ways that make a difference. Melissa's doing exactly that and I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this interview. So, Without further ado. Well, welcome, Melissa, to the podcast. It's been fun already to just have a few minutes to catch up and reconnect with you. Thanks for giving your time today. Yeah, Robin, I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you further um, about is it the Safe and Sound Protocol specifically, but then just some some other pieces that you're using in your work with families that are that are adjunct with that. Um, so I would like to, though, before we dive really far into specifically the safe and sound protocol, just, you know, I introduced you in my introduction to the episode, which just give my audience just a little bit of context of like who you are, <laughs> how did you fall into this work and like do what you do with families? Yeah. So I guess it started before I even realized it. So I'm an adult adoptee. I was adopted as an infant from Korea and actually like a happy adoptee, I think is a designation I would give myself. I didn't really, I mean, it definitely was a part of my identity, but not in a way where I ever felt like I didn't belong. I have two siblings who are adopted from Korea as well. And I have two other cousins adopted. So we have like this whole generation where just mm. adoption was very common. Yeah. And when I met my husband, he didn't know I was adopted, but he... <laughs> was so funny. Like first date Robin, he goes, okay, so I'm dating to find a wife. So if at any point in time, you don't think you can marry me, um, just let me know. And then also I have always wanted to adopt. So you have to also be okay with that. Uh-huh. So that's uh-huh. kind of like how our world started right up front. <laughs> right up front. And um, so we went in, so we had two kids by birth and then we went into adoption, quite frankly, very naively. And 11 years ago, 12 years ago, the research was around institutional trauma more than some of this more complex trauma. And so we knew our son had not been institutionalized from a transracial perspective. He was going to fit into our family probably Mm -hmm. more than the average Korean adoptee. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of blew off like 
pre-adoption training. Like we went, but I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like none of this applies to us. Right. So when he came home, like a whirlwind, it just really disrupted our family and surprised us. Like we just weren't familiar with that kind of behavior and the react, like our inability to use the parenting tools that we gathered previously just didn't work. And so that was really the impetus of starting me down, understanding what complex trauma was, you know, attachment type things. And it's just been this rabbit hole into brain science ever since. And then we went on to adopt three more older children from Ethiopia, which precipitated a need to learn so much more about how our nervous systems function, how we all function in a family and has now, I feel like I'm one of those people, if we had to live through kind of such a hard situation, I really wanted it to matter. And so that has turned into, okay, what have we learned and how can we share that with other adoptive families? Yes. And that's, I mean, I've, that's how I've known you. Like all these years that I've known you has been through, because I see you out there doing work with adoptive families. So you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. We were trained with Empowered to Connect, which is a, like kind of the parenting arm of trust-based relational intervention, TBRI, um, like about 10 years ago, that was part of the start. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. I started reading more, getting any sort of like anything I could get my hands on that I thought would be helpful both for, I mean, for our family and then also the families that were coming to us. And it started kind of as like a volunteer thing. Like I would field phone calls like at night or in, you know, we were homeschooling six kids at one point and um, all these other pieces of the puzzle. But I think, you know, three ish years ago when I really thought this could be a business, it was more about like because I wanted to have dedicated time to serve families because I felt like I wasn't doing a great job because I was trying to fit them into all the other pieces of life. And so I needed to have something that was like, no, you know, spend intentional time helping. Like this is a better way to help than to just, you know, do it off the fly. Yes. Yes. Well, so I, I wanted to have a guest to um, talk to my listeners about the safe and sound protocol, which I don't even know if I've told you, but I'm technically trained in the safe and sound protocol, but I've never gone a moment past, past it. When I got trained in it, it was right as we were moving out of Austin and it just really just fell off of my brain. Um, so I really, you know, I'm a dedicated student of polyvagal theory and, and study it and, and teach it and believe in, you know, what's being offered through the safe and sound protocol. So I knew I wanted to have a guest that could talk to my listeners about safe and sound protocol. And then I really, you know, want, you came to mind because of the fact that you bring together all these different pieces. Like, I know you're an adoptive parent, but I also know you're an adopted person. And I also really love the fact that you're not a quote unquote mental health clinician and that you have found this way to take not some things that are not considered mental health therapy and really get in the trenches and support families. So I want to talk about all those things that you're doing, but let's start with safe and sound protocol and just talk to me as if I'm not trained in the safe and sound protocol, (laughs) because everybody listening, most of them, of course, are not. And just tell us, like, what is the safe and sound protocol? I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
Yeah. I usually start with, and a, and a lot of your listeners probably are familiar with this. It's just like our neuroception. Cause you talk so much about yes. you know interpersonal neurobiology and this yes. sense, this subconscious, you know, system in our body that is scanning constantly and registering information from our world about whether or not we're safe. And a couple things happen in trauma. One is that the confirmation bias of like what that system is expecting. And I'm sure again, a lot of your folks know this can get kind of off, you know, like it may make be taking in information and misinterpreting it. So, you know, if you're a parent of a child who has trauma, you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. My kid's safe. We have a roof over our heads. Mm -hmm. We eat, you know, regular meals a day, but it's, it really goes much, much deeper than that. The other thing that's, I think, really important to know, and we know this kind of inherently already, but sound is one of the primary inputs that our neuroception uses to interpret for whatever reason. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. And, but we, we kind of all know this. Like if you think about how naturally we know how to speak to infants, for instance, like no one puts on their big, bad voice for infants. Like we all, even then, like we raise the frequency just a little bit, you know, and we our face kind of like, like we can't talk to them with a flat affect. Like we kind of have to like, you know, pull our whole bodies into it. And then Hollywood again is another great example of this. You know, think about the way Hollywood uses music in in movies. Like there's, there's definitely, and I think, do you do that shark? There's like that YouTube Mm -hmm. thing where you're watching a shark go across the screen and there's like happy music one time and shark music the other. Like we all know how sound in the form of music tells us something about what's going on. You know, yes. it, it sets the stage for whatever story we're about to tell ourselves. So Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the father of what we call polyvagal theory, kind of figured a lot of this out. And he hypothesized that if we hyperexpose the ears to what's considered sounds of safety, which also happen to be what is considered the frequency of the human voice. Mm-hmm then we could help change the confirmation bias of the nervous system. So where um, I use this example a lot when I'm talking to families about safe and sound, like we, um, I had a bad mom moment a couple summers ago where I had a teenage son who was out and I was supposed to pick him up um, at a time that's normally past my bedtime. And I kind of forgot. So I was supposed (laughs) to pick him up at like, 10 and at like 10 30, my phone rings and he's like, um, you know, like, did you forget about me? And he happens to be one of our more neurotypical, very healthily attached kids. And so he kind of had a good sense of humor about it. He did not think anything terrible had happened. He literally was like, mom probably fell asleep because I asked her to come get me late. And he was like, there's still a bunch of people here. It's totally fine. It was like 15 minutes away. It wasn't a big deal. So I hopped in the car and I went and got him. Yes. I'm sure he never thought about it again. Yes. Whereas with a couple of our other kids who haven't had healthy, consistent attachment their entire lives, I can guarantee you that phone call would have sounded something like, where are you? I knew you hated me. You know, you're the worst mom ever. And et cetera, et cetera. Like that confirmation bias of, um, when things happen, like, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm safe. And it's just an anomaly versus I'm pretty sure I'm not safe. And so I knew I wasn't safe. And this then furthers is further evidence that I thought I wasn't safe. And the other tricky thing about that is when the confirmation bias is negative, we're as parents, we're feeding our kids safe experiences, but in the same way, my son's, you know, experience of being left bounced off is like, Oh, that doesn't really fit my narrative at church. Just an anomaly. The safe experiences we're giving our kids who have a negative confirmation bias. They're like, oh, well, that was kind of a nice experience with that person. I'm sure it was just an anomaly. And so yeah. they stay stuck in that in that bias. And so the safe and sound um, is really just brilliant at shifting nervous systems. Sometimes nervous systems that are really fragile take a little bit more shifting and a little bit more care in the process. Um, but I tell people the music always shifts the nervous system in some way. And there's so many ways that it other ways that it affects the body, we can talk about if you want, but that's kind of the, the science behind why the music, mm-hmm. how it works and why I think it's so important as a way to help support families who are struggling. 
Awesome. So I heard two things I want to come back to. One is if people listening have been listening to the podcast for a while, they've heard me talk about kind of the difference between hope versus expectation. I talked about that a lot in the attachment series I did. So if you're listening, you can go back. That was in June. And I talked all about like how we all have a hope about what's going to happen in relationship as well as an expectation about what's going to happen in relationships. So hearing, hearing similar, you know, a little bit different words, but kind of same theme. Um, so I just wanted to kind of pull that together for people who've been listening for a while. Um, but then I also want to just get a little clearer about what even is the safe and sound protocol? Like, what does that look like? What are you doing with families yeah. and kids and what do you mean music? So yeah, give us the, give us the details. Yeah. So the way that we hyperexpose the ears to music or two sounds of safety is through music. And for all the other things that have been terrible about COVID, it forced the company who produces the safe and sound protocol to move to an app based delivery. We used to literally, sh- I used to ship yes. safe and sound units yes. <laughs> around the country. Right. Like almost like and, they um, look like little Walkmans, right? For like, yeah. They were like, we were um, kids. Yeah. Like these old school MP3 players that were preloaded with the music and and headphones and the whole nine yards. Um, And the app has literally just made this type of service so much more accessible to families. Um, I'm able to work with families virtually, which is amazing. And the sky's kind of the limit. I mean, I have a capacity, of course, but I used to only have two physical units. And so people would literally just be waiting in line (laughs) to get access to it. So um, the protocol was initially designed and studied to be for children on the autism spectrum who are struggling with auditory sensitivity and processing. And so it was five hours of music. They're all filtered for a specific frequency and to do something specific to the nervous system. And I know it sounds crazy that music just kind of quote unquote, just listening to music can have such a profound impact, but it it does. And um, such a profound impact that as more and more people started using the safe and sound In fact, it wasn't even called safe and sound at the very beginning. It was something that was very specific to autism and sound sensory processing. Um, And we started to understand the impacts that polyvagal theory and what Dr. Porges would call this exercise of vagal toning impacted people who had complex trauma or chronic anxiety um, is that this five hours of music that used to be delivered in one hour sessions over five days. It was this like short and sweet to the point therapy um, that that is actually too overwhelming for the nervous system, that that literally creates such a huge shift that if you have a traumatic experience, we know change can be a trigger. Um, So depend if you're looking for the safe and sound protocol, you should find someone who understands how to titrate it and deliver it in a way I call it that honors the nervous system. Um, And so I find that especially adults and kids who have a history of trauma, particularly need that type of care from a provider. And so um, not everyone, like some people still use the traditional five day protocol. So just, you know, ask some questions, see how familiar, you know, people use this for lots of different applications. And so you kind of want to find someone who has um, experience with working with clients with trauma, but the actual therapy itself is like I said, just listening. Listening. Um, There's a, there's a lot more to it than that in terms of knowing your nervous system and when you should listen um, and all of that. But I also I'm such a big fan of this because I think I work with a lot of families with teens mm-hmm. and they tend to be very therapy resistant mm-hmm. in terms of talk that cognitive type things. And I know Robin, you're talking a lot about bottom up versus top down yeah. and it's hard sometimes to get our teens and adults, our adolescents to engage in top down, you know, t- talk to me about your feelings. Tell me about what that might trigger. Like, and so I think this is a, a minimal ask, quote unquote, of yeah. somebody to say like, hey, could we just chill for 10 minutes today and pop on this music? And that's all I'm asking about. Yeah. You know, that's all I'm asking of you is to do that. Yes. 
So you may have heard that the club is open today for just a few days for new members. And I wanted to share with you what this club member said about her time in the club. This member says, I was way more successful handling a stressful situation than I would have been a year ago. And it is truly a result of the material I've learned through Robin and the club. Oh my gosh, y'all. I love, love, love hearing that. There's no way that we can promise that the stress from your kids is going to change because we're just not in control of anybody else but ourselves. But what we can do is work to change how we respond to those stressors. And that's what we do over in the club. We are open for new members from now until the 28th of April, and we would love to have you. Yes. I mean, I think in a way, you know, teens can be resistant because they're so, they, they're so smart. Like they're really honoring what their nervous system needs. They don't need, you know, this particular teen, this hypothetical teen that we're talking about is, you know, like talk, sitting, talking about feelings and what's triggering, like that's not getting to, you know, kind of quote unquote, the heart of the matter, like what's really happening that's underneath so much of the dysregulation or the behavioral challenges or the relational challenges. Well, I tell parents kind of think about it like this. A a lot of parents that come to me kind of understand this like upstairs and downstairs brain concept. And so cognitively they've gotten to the point where they kind of understand that the behaviors they are seeing from their child, whatever age are really originating from a dysregulated kind of lower downstairs brain. So we're all kind of there. Um, But then it's kind of, funny, right? That we tend to um, use top down language, like try harder or, you know, talk therapy and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with a lot of those, but it's kind of crossing our wires, right? Like, right. And so I, I say to parents, like, think about if a baby was crying, what, like, cause people have a hard time sometimes figuring out what I mean by top down versus bottom up. Like if you were, had an infant that, you know, you couldn't use language with, like, we never look at babies, you know, we talk to them to develop their language, but we're never Mm -hmm. really serious when we look at them and be like, you know, no, you're going to have to wait, you know, 20 more minutes to eat, stop crying now. Like we never expect that to actually work. Right. Right. But we automatically use bottom up strategies with infants because we, the top down strategies we know aren't available. And so I tell people like, what do we do with infants? How do we talk to them? How do we move their bodies? How do we move yes. our bodies? What do we do with ourselves? And so think about it like that and then translate it to, to what does that look like for whatever child I ha- age child I have? Like we're not obviously rocking and holding 15 year olds, but we can get on a porch swing together with them. We can offer them food. You know, there's right. a lot of things that we can still do that talk to that downstairs brain. Yes. So what the episode that kind of kicked off this series talks about like right intervention, wrong time <laughs> that I know, you know, in my progression as a mental health provider, I feel like we went through this period of time where more cognitive interventions were given like a really terrible rap. Like we should never be using cognitive interventions with people ever. It seemed like it was like, well, that might not be exactly the right way to look at it, but it might not be the right intervention at the right time. And if we can look at like, what is the right intervention for the right time? Meaning like what's going on in the, in the brain and in the nervous system. And what does that brain and the nervous system really need to be like as strengthened and supported from the bottom up, like I'm sure you do this too. Like I use a ho- like a house analogy, right? That if we want, you know, if we're earthquake proofing a house, we're not super worried about the decorations, because, right? <laughs> right? We're gonna really focus on the most. But the decorations could be important, and they're lovely, you know, whatever. But it doesn't really matter how well you know they match the decor or nailed to the wall if an earthquake comes through and levels your house, which is what happens in the brain. It feels like when there's a little bit of stress. If that brain has, you know, isn't neurotypical for whatever reason, or has had 
you know, these early ex- experiences that have impacted their autonomic nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and let's be honest, we're a year and a half into a global pandemic. I think it's yes. pretty safe to say that all yes. of our nervous systems, yes. and I think because of how the nervous systems do communicate, you know, non-verbally with each other, right. like we all are kind of at a, yes. a state of higher alert, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're listening, you're thinking, well, my kid, you know, I, my kid doesn't have like a history of, you know, terrible things that have happened or, or our house is pretty okay. Or, or maybe your house pretty, isn't pretty okay, but you're not really quite sure why, like, you know, don't underestimate just the power of the global nervous system health. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's in a way, you know, not, not to ever say that anything good could come out of the pandemic, but there has been this new awareness of some of these, I guess maybe like a lot of people would say more subtle ideas about trauma, you know, that like we're really redefining, you know, what does trauma mean? What can that, you know, what is pushing people's window of tolerance, you know, right outside their window of tolerance in a, in a brand new way and looking at kind of chronic stress um, in a new light and giving it the intention that it really deserves so that then we can support the part of the brain and the body that chronic stress negatively impacts. So there's this, you know, and when I did go through the training five days, uh, hour a day, um, of listening. And I do know that, you know, one of the things I've really enjoyed about the safe and sound protocol is that it's very accessible to get trained in the safe and sound protocol. It's making it, there's these efforts I feel like that are being made to make it an accessible treatment modality for as many people as possible. And I'm also watching it really evolve, right. That like what the initial recommendations were folks are getting, more information about how to be nuanced with it or how to kind of move outside this like one hour a day, five days in a row protocol. So kind of just paraphrasing or summarizing what you've already said is like, if you're out there looking for somebody to support you through the safe and sound protocol to find somebody who actually will be supportive of it and not just mail, you know, like mail you a unit like they used to, or like, you end up doing the protocol all on your own, but to have somebody really helping your family through the application of this protocol. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think here's the, the thing about the double-edged sword about accessibility uh-huh. for safe and sound is that it needs to be accessible because I think it's so powerful and it, we need it right yes. now more than ever. On the flip side, it's easy because it's so accessible and because there is this beautiful simplicity about it to think that it might be like the quick fix or the thing, or that we can just kind of throw it at our kids. Because I mean, I'll be honest, like I'm an adoptive parent who has some challenging kids and sometimes I'm feeling blocked, you know, like I have some blocked care or whatever. And I want to just like throw headphones at a kid and be like, here, listen to this. This will fix you and like toss them in a room. Totally. (laughs) Yes. And, um, and so it's really tempting to do that. And I, you know, when I first got into this, did less support with families. I did like kind of some initial stuff. And then I would kind of make sure, sure that they understood what I wanted them to do. And they were kind of on their own. And what I found is that in order for families to really start to see the shifts that they want to see is that we have to think about it so much more holistically, which is why we start with things like neuroception and understanding our nervous systems. And so I tell my families, like, think about this as a really powerful tool in the toolbox, but in order for it to quote unquote work, mm-hmm. we need to think about all the ways we're cueing safety in our family environment to our kids, we look at physical things, you know, what, what, what are, you know, is there an underlying illness? Like what is, what's the nutrition look like? We look at sensory things. We look at interpersonal things, like how as parents are we responding or reacting to behaviors and is it cueing safety? And so we have to kind of do all of that work with the safe and sound as kind of this catalyst and this thing. I mean, cause I believe that nervous systems can change with 
out safe and sound doing all the other, you know, um, queuing safety type mm-hmm. things and how mm-hmm. we parent and all those things, but it, it takes a while. Like there's yes. a time commitment and it's not a mat and it's not quick. Yes. Um, and safe and sound, I think is a little bit of a catalyst. What I see with families is it helps us sometimes get on, uns- like if the wheels are spinning, it helps us get a little traction. It helps us yes. get over the hump, get unstuck. And, and we need that because we're human too. And so it's a lot to ask families to, you know, lay out all the, the road, for felt safety and be like, in the end, just stick with it for the next like 10 to 12 years. And you know, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it'll be great. Yeah. Um, and so I think safe and sound gives us, because not only does it help shift over time, the confirmation bias, but even while a person's listening to the music, assuming that they're able to do it in a safe place with a safe person, yes. the music itself actually spontaneously shifts the nervous system to the top of the polyvagal ladder into that sense of social engagement, safety, bravery, um, opened, you know, it opens the nervous system to connection. And so, um, that's an unfamiliar place for a lot of our people, but it starts to give them a taste of it and more of a taste than what we can do without it. If that makes sense. I think it does make sense. And I think, um, I, I agree from a clinical perspective that, Sometimes, yeah, yes, all these other things are completely true in that we can work on felt safety and we can work on cues of safety and we can parent therapeutically and we can work on nutrition and we can work on our, you know, and it's like, and then yes, let's wait 10 to 12 years. And that's not true for every family by any means, but sure can feel that way. Yeah. Right. And I also think that it's, I feel like, and I have some of the families I've worked with felt the same thing that there's even a sense of relief of like, there's something that can be done to support my child or even myself that doesn't have to be completely about me and as a parent and what I'm doing and the, all the relational pieces that there can be, it's really easy to conflate that with, and it's my fault if then it doesn't get better. And so to remember that like the nervous system, first of all, is way more complex than you or I could ever begin to imagine because nobody understands it at this in 2021, really. And that there are like, sometimes I feel like in this work with, you know, attachment focused work and, you know, count, there's such this focus on parents and how we parent therapeutically. And there should be, because it's so, so, so important but then there's this way that, that we make it mean like, well, if things aren't getting better, it must be my fault. While forgetting to look at these physiological pieces of like what is happening in the autonomic nervous system. And yes, like relationship is the portal in a way into the autonomic nervous system, but it's not the only thing that's happening in the autonomic nervous system that we could help kind of just support or bolster and just like, like a catalyst, I think, you know, was the word that you used. Um, yeah. And, and to your point, like I, when I work with families, I require whoever the support person is for the child. Cause typically parents come to me wanting regulation help for a child, yes. um, but I now require parents yes. to go through the protocol too, because I think we just can't underestimate either one, how our nervous system is impacted by the just yeah. everyday stresses of meeting the needs of a child with a lot of challenges yeah. and also never underestimate, you know, the power of your own nervous system in co-regulation. You know, right. I had right. one family where the child never, actually she was a young adult, like never consented and never followed through on actually listening to the protocol, but the mom yeah. did. Yeah. And, and the daughter said, mom, I, I think there's something different about you. You know, like yeah. we notice these things. Yes. So, and it gives us a place, Our it puts our locus of control. I mean, it, it's a fine balance, right? Like we, it's not our fault when our kids don't get better, but we also, right. if the locus of control is on us, we can feel a lot more empowered, right? you know, instead of helpless, like you know, there's nothing I can do in the situation. Right. I agree. There is a really, really fine balance because there is so much that we can do relationally with people that we're in close relationship with, whether that be our kids or our, you know, partners or whoever, and not every single piece is within our control. And so how can we, how can we balance both of those things? 
And and I think maybe especially as a as a quote unquote mental health therapist who is so focused on the relational aspects, just taking a step back and going, and there's other pieces that we can do that can really support the autonomic nervous system being willing to be vulnerable enough to even take in a cue of safety because this can be such a double-edged sword of like a cue of safety can be almost immediately felt as not safe, not safe, not safe, not safe. I am a big proponent in remembering that felt safety isn't only about the relational field. And I feel like that becomes a really big misnomer in the therapeutic parenting community in particular, that felt safety is all about what I as a parent am giving or creating to my child. And there's a huge piece of that that's true for sure. But the physiological piece that's happening inside the child's inner world or inner nervous system also needs to just be remembered as something that we can support. And yes, the safe and sound protocol is also about safety in relationships. It's not like we're teasing that out. We're just remembering that it's just way more complex than any one finite kind of siloed piece. Yeah. We're just beautifully mysterious and complex (laughs) beings, right? Yes. I love that word mysterious. Actually, I just used it the other day. They're like, it's okay. And that has to be okay it's okay for some of this to be mysterious and it has to be okay because there's no other option. I know at this point. Yeah. And then you're using it then in a very robust way, as far as focusing on the other pieces that are happening within a family, you know, not just using the safe and self protocol and saying, here, go do this. Let me know what happens, but really using it in this more holistic way inside families. Yeah. So I have this program, I call it the regulation rescue, uh, I think named appropriately, actually, I think our community voted on that, on that name, but it's, it's this like 60 day kind of all inclusive program that does, I just tell families, like we literally, I walk you through how to layer and how to do all these cues of safety. So it includes some parent training, some parent coaching, it includes the safe and sound protocol. And I have moved to this model where um, besides the assessment piece, I actually, we literally just step our way through it. So I only give you like the next thing to do. So it's like, listen to the first 20 minutes and every individual who's going through the program has a tracking sheet and they check in on it and they tell me a little bit about how it went. And I use all of that information to say, okay, well, we could probably still keep going at 20 minutes a day or whatever, or maybe we need to skip a day, or maybe we need to bring that back to 10 minutes. Um, And so I get in there every morning and look at everyone's trackers and really see what everyone's doing and where they should be, because what we don't want to tolerate as um, families who are already struggling is um, overwhelm of the nervous system because this is a shift And that usually looks like regression and behaviors and no one wants that. So we try really hard not to go there. Um, I also have been pairing it with aromatherapy because, you know, if we think about, you know, Pavlov's dogs, we can condition responses and we know that smell already has this direct connection to the Mm -hmm. limbic system different than any other of the senses. And also we will not always be able to stop our lives and do a safe and sound. Right. So, um, so this is, so we work on creating this conditioned response. We use an anchor oil, um, for everyone who's listening. And that just means that now you can have, um, you know, aromatherapy jewelry on or a a little inhaler that fits in a pencil case. And when you're feeling like you need a quick hit and a cue of safety, you can then shift, you know, that spontaneous move um, to safety, to this like scent in your pocket or whatever. And then, so that's been a really great tool because as we're sending our kids, you know, back to school, for example, um, hopefully this year, you know, they can have, you know, just this little, you know, stick of scent, you know, Mm -hmm. in their pencil Mm -hmm. case and they can, you know, break, pull it out real quick and then tuck it back in and 
Um, and it just becomes a, a really great way to be able to have something quick and, um, you know, that we know will work Yes, in as many different situations as possible. Yeah. And that it's easy. There's an EMDR protocol that pairs easy, meaning easy to access later, right? The smell, just like you said, like, as opposed to like, let me put my headphones on and do this. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there's an EMDR protocol too, that pairs, um, safety with scent, um, to, for all the reasons that you just said, like, it's such a important, good anchor. And then it's, it's, accessible. Like it's something that, you know, now I was working with kids. I mean, we were using like flavored chapsticks. Um, yeah. And right? anything that'll do it. Yeah. And and the beautiful thing, if you can get your hands on an actual essential oil is then yes. there's also brain chemistry yeah. and like to help support. So it's kind of, it's, it is cueing safety. Just, you know, there are essential oil scents that can cue safety just because of their chemistry. So we can obviously, yeah. you know, anchor whatever scent we want. I we've chosen it to do essential oils because of also the other chemistry in it. So it's, yes. it's just been so um, it's been so great to be able to offer something to families that's accessible from almost anywhere. You know, if you have as, you know, if you can get on zoom, if you can have yeah. a download an app, like yeah. then you can do this. And so um, that's been really a great gift. I mean, I'm thinking like, this is what I wish we had had 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, I said this to you before we started recording and just want to reiterate, like, I just have so much, honestly, like gratitude for, you know, professionals, clinicians, whatever we want to call ourselves who are just willing to be creative, willing to um, take safe risks, you know, that, like, this is how our field has evolved and willing to be like, oh, that, that didn't work. Let's try this instead, but to be creative and to find ways to support families outside, uh, what we tend to turn to as like the typical therapy experience or the model of therapy that really just is not so often not enough for these families and also just not available and accessible, um, so really, truly just have so much gratitude for your willingness to like be creative and just get in there and see what you can do. That's supportive of families. And you do a lot more than this. So tell my listeners <laughs> what you do do so that they can go and find what you're offering. Cause it's a lot and it's awesome. Oh, well, thanks. Well, we, so I'm the co-founder of um, the adoption connection and yes. it kind of started as a podcast and then has, as you said, grown into just a lot of different ways that we can help families in the post adoption space. So yes. we don't really walk families through getting to the point of adoption. Right. We're kind of there, you know, after in whatever way we can be. And, um, you know, as we mentioned, I'm an adopted person and my co-host for the podcast, Lisa is a first mom and an adoptive mom. And so we really just do our best to bring all of that perspective and experience Mm -hmm. into resources that we think will be the most helpful. So we're the adoption connection everywhere. Um, Facebook, we have a Facebook group. We have the podcast is called the adoption connection. We're on Instagram is the adoption connection. So yes, um, that's the best way to connect and that's where we run our regulation rescue groups. We start one um, every like four to six weeks. We have a new cohort that gets to go through that and get started. So, and you all do other things too. Like I've heard amazing things about the blocked care group that you've done. And so really everyone listening, go and find your the adoption connection podcast and then find the group on Facebook. Cause that's just offering really amazing resources to families who can't get enough, right? Like anything they can add is awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks. And Robin, we, I followed your work for forever. And so just appreciate your voice in the space. And I feel like you're always getting me to think just a little bit differently about what I'm such a black, I'm a black and white person really at heart. And so really a lot of my growth in the past 10 years has been uh-huh. looking for the gray areas, trying to stay curious and you've been yeah. a big part of that. So thanks Good. for your work thank as well. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. Right. I'm, I just have so much hope for the future, bringing healing to kids and families 
precisely because of people like Melissa. Definitely head over to her website and check out her podcast. I'll put links down in the show notes. And you can also always read a summary of my podcast over on my blog. And there's live links to the things we've talked about in the blog as well. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast. I'm really, really grateful for you. Thank you for your commitment to kids and families and for making the world a better place by embodying the science of relationships. I'll see you next week. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you can get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you can just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.